But uh, everybody understand what a blog is. A blog is a shortened version of the word weblog, and it's an ongoing running diary online. So if you wanted to share a little bit about what's going on with your day, or you wanted to share kind of what God's teaching you, or if it's a secular blog, then you would just share a little bit of what's going on with you and talk to your friends and make comments. So anyway, I'm doing this research for this sermon, and I'm looking up all this different theological stuff, and I put in a couple key words, and it Googled out this log. And I read it, and I'm thinking, I wonder who this is. I wonder, is this some theologian? Is this some scholar? And then I noticed it was Battle Maiden from the UK. I was like, Battle, Battle Maiden? What are you talking about? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Sure enough, I looked it up. Birmingham Christian Forum in the UK and worldwide. Some gal named Battle Maiden. I don't know, but it made me laugh. I looked at her quote, and I thought, man, I don't know who she is. But no scholar could have said it better than her. Let's take a look at what she has to say and see if it doesn't minister to you in the same way. She said this. How does God get your attention? A lot of times with me, it's a restless spirit. I know with others, God may use blessings or even allow them to experience difficult circumstances, failures, and disappointments. He has used all of these methods at one time or another to prompt me to turn toward him. However he chooses to get our attention, we should hearken and ask, Father, are you trying to speak to us? Are you trying to tell me something? God, our Father, our Creator, is worthy of our undivided attention. He is waiting to speak to us, yet we get so preoccupied looking at our circumstances rather than Him. No one could have said it better than that. So I ask you the question, practically, literally, how does God get your attention? Now, for me, being a social critter, I like people. So usually the way that God's going to get my attention is through somebody else. When they say something to me, I pay attention to it. And if they say something that I think God's trying to tell me something, that's usually how he gets my attention. Is that how he gets your attention? Okay, well, here's the problem. What if it's a bad message? What if it's a negative message? What if it's a message of correction? To you what if it's a message that you're out of line then who's going to give it to you because your friends aren't they're scared to death to address you like that they don't want to say anything like that they don't want you not to like them so they're going to hold back so if it's a negative message how does god get your attention usually you're going to go well it's through the bible or church no no and how do i know that because whenever you read the bible or go to church you assume it applies to the person to your left and as a matter of fact, you have someone in mind that, gosh, you wish they were here to hear that message because, boy, does it apply to them. And all message long, you're trying to figure out how it applies to their life. So, no, no negative message is going to get across to you because you'll blow it up and make it a global thing and say everybody has an issue with that. You won't allow a negative message to go directly to you for your own correction. So how is God supposed to get that message across to you? Usually he tries everything, and then almost as a last resort, he strangleholds your life. He gets you nailed down to the ground, and he says, look at me. What, you don't want us to pretend this is personal? Now it's personal. You and me, let's talk. I've shut down every aspect of your life and you got nowhere to go. You've been penned up and now we're going to talk. That's usually what's up happening. Now, 
it goes back to the great question is, is why is life so unfulfilling and frustrating at times? I imagine there's a bunch of reasons. One of the most obvious reasons is it's a consequence to your decisions. Let's say you're going through a bankruptcy. Well, that may have been because you made poor financial decisions in the past and it led to a difficult place. All right. Maybe it is suffering from other people's poor choices. That's Julie's story where her grandfather made horrible decisions. She ended up paying for them. Or maybe it's just being in a broken world, right? I mean, when Katrina hit, Hurricane Katrina, nobody did anything wrong. It just hurt everybody. Okay, well, that's hard. But sometimes it's God trying to tell you something. Look at the fill in the blank on your sheet in front of you. It's this. Sometimes your frustration is God's voice. Sometimes, not all the time, not even the majority of times. But sometimes your frustration is God trying to get your attention. Now, a lot of times it's not. But every time you go through a frustration, every time you go through a turmoil, every time you go through a pain, every time you go through a problem, your first question should be, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? Are you trying to tell me something? Now, most of the time God's going to go, nope, but thanks for checking in. But sometimes... Every once in a while, God goes, yeah, I am. Thanks for checking in with me. What we're about to read in the book of Amos is where Israel has gotten so far off track, God is bringing judgment upon them, and he's trying to get their attention for years. He shut down everything in their lives to corral them, and no matter where he corrals them, they squirm out of it. Every problem hits and they got a reason for it. Everything collides and they blame everybody else. It's like no matter what occurs, they can't get nailed down and focused. They will not look at God and he finally says, we have to talk. And judgment will be that voice. If you have not already, please turn with me to Amos chapter 4, page 649 in the Bible's handed to you. Amos chapter 4, verse 1. I'll just read the first three verses and then we'll tear it apart this morning. It begins like this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks. The last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall and you will be cast out. Toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, the message that you are about to corral us into, the message you're about to strike at our heart, is one that is cutting. And Lord, we're going to do our best to get out of the way and to deflect. I ask, Lord, that you would center in on us and allow us to know where it is that you are whispering, where it is you are speaking to, and that we would look you in the eye. And pay attention. May we leave here, Father, not only convicted, but with courage to do something about it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Begins with, hear this word. That means you're not paying attention, so listen to me, please. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, Bashan is a place, and they raise cattle. It's almost like when we say Angus beef, you think of a certain breed of cattle... 
At least that's what you're thinking of that is for the purpose of eating, right? So they had the big, fat, plumpy cows. Okay? So what he says, he rolls up from the south of Israel to the north, and he says, listen to me, you big, fat cows. Okay? Now, that's not exactly PC. It was not exactly the way that you want to address people. But he wasn't talking anything about their physical appearance. It was everything about that they were fattening themselves on luxury by oppressing their fellow Israelites. They were causing problems, hurting people, and laughing it up. And he said, what is your problem? Listen to me. You cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, meaning the Israel northern area, you who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your masters, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. Why are cows fattened up but to be taken to the slaughter and then they use this word he said the time will come when you'll be taken away with hooks that word hooks in hebrew is actually thorns they would make their hooks out of thorns and what's fascinating is what nation is coming to attack them you guys remember 722 bc the north was taken out by the assyrian empire we know the assyrians as being a pretty nasty group of guys well, if you go into archaeology, they found a relief, which is basically uh, a picture inscribed on stone talking about how they would lead their prisoners. And guess what? They would lead them through by running a rope with hooks and they'd hook it through their lip and, or through their nose and they'd link them all together and just carry them along. And they'd all have to follow along being pulled by hooks in their face. Now, if you rip away... Then they have to rehook you again. So there's a lot of encouragement to stay in line. Does that make sense? Will they really be led away with hooks? Yeah, in much more of a literal way than you ever imagined. They will be led away with hooks. You will each go straight out through breaks in the wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon, which is an unknown location. The idea is being cast out on the death heap, declares the Lord. So why... Is God so mad? Well, he said very simply, you oppress the poor, you crush the needy. All right. Went through the book of Amos, and I wanted to find out exactly what Israel's problem was. And I went through and I wrote down every time they were named as doing something wrong. I came up with 16 of them. 16 things were labeled out, right? I'm going to go through this list really fast, but I need you to do the work. Here's the work. You've got to make it applicable to you. In other words, when I say something like, they did this in warfare, and you're going to like, well, it doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not in warfare. Okay, when you fight with your spouse, that's a form of warfare. If you're fighting with your neighbor, that's called warfare. Okay, can we all please try to engage with this and say, how would I apply it to me, as opposed to just assuming I'm talking to somebody else? Here we go. This, listen to this list. Number one, brutal treatment of enemies. Number two, profiting off another person unjustly for profit. Number three, inhumane treatment of another. Number four, burning anger with no forgiveness. Number five, needless atrocity in warfare. Number six, 
humiliation and degradation of other people. Number seven, rejection of God and his laws. Number eight, embracing lies and false gods. Number nine, exploiting the poor. Number 10, corruption, bribery, and denying justice to the needy. Number 11, sexually using others as objects. Number 12, extortion monetarily, meaning charging too much for your own luxury. Number 13, pressuring the godly to compromise. Number 14, rejecting the truth and those that would speak the truth. Number 15, promoting self-righteousness, meaning appearing to be holy but really having no connection to God. And number 16, turning a blind eye to injustice. Anybody got an idea why God's mad? Here's the mistake that we make. We make this mistake when we read through the Old Testament. God's always mad. No, God's not always mad. As a matter of fact, God's the happiest being in the universe. But it gets a little tense when you hurt other people. As a matter of fact, that's why I love him. Picture this. Do you want a God who just lets it all go? Is that the God that you want to serve? What you want to serve a deity that when someone oppresses someone else, someone harms another person, someone abuses another person, and God just goes, oh, well, is that what you want? Because you don't want God to be mad. You know what? I worship God because he gets mad. That's a good thing. You understand? Let me give you a real quick analogy. Friday, Jillian had a test. She's my seven-year-old. And so she's taking this test in first grade. And she has to do some spelling words. And one of her spelling words is mean. M-E-A-N. All right? So she has to write a sentence for it. So she has to think of this. We're eating cereal. She has her Rice Krispies. and And we're hanging out. And she's getting ready to write her sentence. And she says... Mean. How about my daddy is mean? And I go, I'm like, no, don't write that down. Then he's going to go to school. And they're like, I knew it. He's a pastor, but he's totally mean to his kid. I'm like, come on. So she starts giggling. I said, I am not. And she goes, I know, I know. Well, you kind of are. And I was like, wait a second. What do you mean? She goes, well, you're mean when I'm bad. And I go, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Good point. And I said, do you understand that I'm getting mean for a correction? Okay, here's the deal. This is what God is like. God is like the being who wants to bless you, wants to engage with you, wants to love you, wants to take care of you, wants to go on adventures with you, wants to create amazing things for you. But yeah, he's going to get really mad at you when you are horrible to another person. That's what good daddies do. And that's why I love him. And he's really angry at Israel because of what they're doing to other people. And he's not just going to let his kids off the hook because they're his kids. That's called just. Yeah? So I'm trying to apply this stuff to my life, right? I'm writing this lesson and I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to apply. And I realize I don't see any injustice in my world. Like, what are you talking about? Well, let's go through my world for a second. I live in Folsom. I work out here, and I commute back and forth. But in that commute, I'm in a little bubble called a car, okay? Nobody can touch me in there, and I can adjust my radio wherever I want, all right? I don't have to listen to the news if I don't want to listen to the news, all right? So I'm mostly listening to either preaching and teaching or sports radio. That's pretty much all I listen to, all right? So as I'm going back and forth, I may stop at 
I don't know, Target. Okay, I'm looking for injustice in Target. I'm looking all, okay, not finding injustice there, right? Then I take my kids to school. They're in the public school system. I look at the teachers. They're working their tails off to try to make sure all the children are learning. They're handing out parenting advice through different things. The principal's working his tail off. Everybody's loving on the kids. Everybody's working as hard as they can. I'm not seeing any injustice there. Then I drive in my little bubble. I come here. I come to work. I walk in i'm looking for injustice i'm staring at russ i'm like i know it's in there right and i can't find any injustice in the executive pastor right totally convinced that mark's corrupt but i can't find anything about him either i can't see any injustice if i had injustice that was around me i'd flip my lid get all upset and i have to go do something about it but i don't see any injustice what's the problem with that does injustice exist in my communities Yes. So what's the problem? We got two options. Either I've insulated myself from it or I don't want to know about it. Those are your two choices. That doesn't make you innocent. In some ways, it makes sense, does it not? If I know that someone is hurting someone else, I'm not going to hang out with them. Is that wrong? I mean, no, I'm going to try to distance myself from injustice. To such a degree that I've insulated and padded my whole world. But on the other sense, there's a way to know about it. I just don't want to know about it. Because if I know about it, then I've got to react to it. And I'd rather not know. Uh, but am I not still guilty? Yeah. You don't have to touch it yourself to be guilty of it. You realize that? Do you understand that you can fund oppression? And you've never had to touch it. Do you understand that you can be guilty by association? Do you understand that not knowing and choosing not to know and turning a blind eye to injustice is feeding the fire? Ah, but it feels better, doesn't it? Because we don't know about it. As I look at this, there is injustice in the world. I just got this book, right? This book from this gal on the high school staff, she comes up to me and she hands me this book called Good News About Injustice. And it begins to chronicle a bunch of different areas in the world where hardcore injustice is going on and where God is moving there. She's part of the International Justice Mission, the IGM.org. A bunch of people have come up to me and talked about that. She's really into this. She brings me this book, right? I start to read the book. I go through the introduction. I'm right through the preface. I start getting nervous. I'm like, I'm about to read some pretty hardcore stuff. I don't even know if I want to know. And I'm watching myself get tense, getting ready to shut the book and not even wanting to read it. Because it will disturb my world. Right? In this injustice, I pretend it's not real. You see, because they usually hand out a video, right? A video of this is what's going on. These are the invisible children of Uganda, right? Or this is going on in this location. What I do is I've seen a lot of videos on TV and everybody's hyping everything to get money. Everybody's hyping everything and they're doing reality TV and I don't even know what's real anymore. So I just pretend it's like that. There's not really injustice. Everyone's just trying to tell a story to get you stirred up. But that's not true. There is injustice. And it's going on all the time. So you know what we do? Here's a Christian response. We get sad. As a matter of fact, if we get an email about some injustice going on in the world, we get really bummed out. And if you're super holy, you'll cry. 
And then when you cry, you've got to forward that email to six people and make them cry. Because if you cry, then Jesus is happy. You guys beginning to understand how silly we appear? Because Christians getting depressed solves the problems of the world. We don't do anything about it. We just get really sad. Okay, being sad about the oppression isn't fixing it. It's just being sad. I then realized, wait a second, isn't the heart of injustice treating someone else poorly? Or being selfish and pretending like the world's all about you and using someone? I went, "Uh uh-oh, I'm doing that every day. I use people for the strokes I can receive. I use people for the attention they place on me. I use people for the beauty that they have. I use people all day long. Just because it's not global doesn't mean it's not important. Just because it's not widespread doesn't make it not wrong. Localized injustice is still injustice. And we're doing it every day. And it's got to stop. We have to make a decision that we stop the injustice that we do see. Because as insulated as we may be, it's going to creep in. It may be coming right out of you. Maybe you own your own business. And you know you're corrupt. You're doing little things here and there and you're sliding this under the table and you're doing this and everything else and you're oppressing this other person and you're taking from this other person. Stop doing that. You work for a corporation and even though they're the ones that have set up all this corruption and everything, you're the one that's working for them and you're helping them make all the sales and all the deals and oppress other people. Stop doing that. Maybe it's just you. Maybe it's just you where you realize you're using people. we got to stop the oppression because we're hurting people. He picks it up in verse 4. Go to Bethel. Bethel is the main sanctuary of worship in northern Israel. It's a place where the king would go to worship. It was a place where pilgrims would go to and they'd all worship God there. He said, go ahead, go to Bethel and then what? And sin. Go to Gilgal, that's the other sanctuary, and sin yet more. Go ahead, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, ye Israelites, for that's what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. That's called sarcasm. He's like, go ahead, keep going to church, it's working for you. It's all looking nice, everybody's bringing in their tithe. Hey, you know what the three year tithe is for? The poor. Where'd you get the money to pay the poor tithe? From oppressing the poor. Something wrong with that? Yeah. And then comes the heart of the message. I gave you empty stomachs. That word, that phrase in Hebrew says, I gave you clean teeth, which sounds funny. You're like, right on. Good? No. No, that's bad. No, that's a bad thing. Clean teeth means there's no food in there to make them messy. That's the point. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards. 
I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did in Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword, along with captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Meaning, what more do I got to do? I've tried to shut you down in every capacity. I've devastated you. I threw you into absolute devastation. I bankrupted you. I crashed you. I attacked you. You will not listen to me. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. That word is military. It means you want to fight me? Let's line up. Go ahead. You bring out your team, I'll bring out my team. Let's go. Prepare to meet your God. It says what? He who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. Yahweh, God Almighty, is his name. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. What's a lament? It's a funeral poem. It means someone died. And they're going, uh, maybe you got this wrong because nobody's dead here. Israel's actually at the height of its prosperity. We're doing great. Thank you very much. Economic indicators are up. We're doing just fine. He said, not really. Fallen is virgin Israel. That means cut down in her prime. Never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. In other words, a military judgment will sweep upon you. The Assyrians will wipe you out and you will never again be a powerful nation in the same way. And guess what? 722, they came through and knocked it out. 586, the Babylonians knocked out the south. And Israel has never risen again in the same way. Is this legit? It's literal. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, meaning even in the south, they're going to. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. In other words, the house of God will become the house of nothing. Seek Yahweh and live or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. In other words, stop running to all these other locations. Quit deflecting. Quit throwing up your defense mechanism. Quit running to church and thinking that somehow everything's cool. Everything's not okay. Look at me. And live. You who turn justice into wormwood. You ever heard that phrase before? It means bitterness. You who turn justice, the justice system that should protect people, is now what they fear. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And then Amos pauses to remind them who they're messing with. Right in the middle of this judgment, he stops and he says, do you understand? Most people believe it was a hymn that was common and he just begins to sing out this hymn. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, those are constellations that were known very well by the shepherds. What did Amos do for a living? He's a shepherd. 
You, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, Yahweh is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings a fortified city to ruin. That's who you're messing with. You who hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You will press the righteous and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, even the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. You must seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then Yahweh God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Understand that every time Israel went to war, their famous marching chant was the Lord is with us. He said, you keep saying that, but he's not. Just because you say it doesn't make it true. Do right, then he'll be with you. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. God said, more than your sacrifices, I desire what? Obedience. More than you going to church, I desire you doing right things. Extending mercy to other people. More than you being a theological scholar, I want you to start treating people right. Because that is my heart and what I desire. Make no mistake, we stand condemned because either we help the oppressors or we turn a blind eye to what they do. And yet God keeps moving it around in front of your face. He did it to me last night, right? I told you how much I avoid this idea of injustice because it makes me really sad. And I told you that my trigger is what? Kids can't handle kids being harmed. That's my big thing. So last night, who shows up at church but this gal named Brianna? Never met her before, never even seen her before. I feel terrible if she's been here for like three years, right? I have no idea who she is, never met her. I'm walking back there, and she stops me, and she said, Hi, I work with, in Thailand with all the children that are forced into the sex slave trade. And here's our bulletin. We're running out of money as of March. We have 17 girls that are being housed, and they're going to lose all their housing. And you were just talking about oppression and injustice. I'm like, are you kidding me? Kids forced into the sex slave trade. Is there any worse thing I could hear right now? And was so cute as she goes, well, I won't tell you in the stories because I don't want to make you sad. I'm like, no, you, no, I have to, <laughs> you have to understand. I was just trying to explain to you I'm a pansy. That's all I was trying to tell you. I didn't say I didn't need to hear it. I just said that I'm a wimp. That's totally different. No, I do need to hear the stories. Do you understand? I don't need to be, have them kept away from me. And so we as a church have to determine how we're going to engage with that scenario and what we're going to do about it. 
But sometimes we're also part of the problem. And I wonder if God doesn't take away some of our satisfaction in life in order to make a point. It's almost like I wonder, I have so much stuff that I wonder if God makes it not as enjoyable because a bunch of people don't have any stuff. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching the, the material here. But I guess I just wonder how God's trying to get my attention and what he's trying to say. Because I think it's significant. I think it's something. And I believe that just pretending doesn't make it go away. This is the year of doing stuff, folks. The year of world impact. Not the year of getting sad about stuff. Big difference. Will we motivate? Will we move? Will we act? That is my prayer. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we don't know everything going on, and when we catch wind of it, we're horrified. And then, Lord, we go back home. Lord, I don't know how to solve the problems, but you do. I don't know how to begin a movement, but you already began one. You're asking us to join you in what you're already doing, and yet we fear. Lord, we don't want our worlds uncomfortable. We don't want to have to part with what we have. We don't get it, and we lack the courage to respond. I just ask that you would fill us up with strength, that you would fill us up with a knowledge of the truth, And then you would fill us up with a fire to go out and do something because of it. May us, the family here, do something about it. In Jesus' name, amen.